You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anne Rice is the author of 31 books, including the novels Interview with a Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, Angel Time, Of Love and Evil, and her autobiographical work Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession. Her new novels are The Wolf's Gifts, and her latest novel in that series is The Wolves of Midwinter. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. And this is such a wonderful book because you managed to combine Norman Rockwell and Grand Guignol in the same (laughs) breath. I love that. Thank you so much. I totally love that. Thrilled to hear you think that. Nidek Point is such a great place, uh, and that's where these books unfold. And you've created this atmosphere as we start this book. Uh, Reuben, he's in this big family of werewolves, the the distinguished gentlemen they call themselves. They're getting ready to celebrate Yuletide, and this is a book all about the midwinter holiday. That's true. That's true. The original title was Yuletide at Nideck Point, but we changed the title for various reasons to the Wolves of Midwinter. But it's really all about how this group of supernatural beings, the werewolves, the the men-wolves, the she-wolves, whatever— how they deal with midwinter, how they deal with it as human beings, providing this wonderful Christmas gala for the whole neighborhood, all of Northern California, and then how they go off and they celebrate their own ancient rituals with bonfires and a sort of almost Dionysian type of orgy in the forest on, on Christmas Eve, Mordernicht. I, I think it's so much fun the way you've crafted this. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the kind of research you must have done into Yuletide and into these midwinter celebrations, because this percolates up throughout the work. There's little details here and there that come through, and I think it really adds to the family, the fascination of the family, and it draws the characters together. Well, I've always been fascinated with Christmas and fascinated with the pagan rituals that happened at midwinter in northern Europe before Christmas came into the calendar. And I dealt with this before in a series of books about the Mayfair witches, about their background in medieval Scotland and and early Renaissance Scotland, and the haunting sort of pagan rituals that surround Christmas in that part of the world. And I really have just never gotten finished with the theme, the idea of Christmas. I mean, traditionally, uh, in English literature and legend, Christmas is a time when the dead come close to the living, when they can cross over. It's like the Halloween rituals. The the dead are close, and, and Europeans have traditions of going out and dressing up in animal skins at that time of year and cavorting. And, of course, beating drums and pans to make um, the sun come back. You know, the sun of of spring and summer and the harvest to make it return, that type of thing. And I wanted to deal with all of that. I I, I think the deep roots of these holidays we celebrate really matter, that we never should disconnect, disconnect ourselves from those roots, whether it's Halloween or New Year's or Christmas or Easter. You know, we need we need to respect the the. coming together of, of Christian customs with pagan customs and just take the whole thing for what it's worth to us as human beings living on this planet in a biological world. 
I think one of the things that I really loved about this novel is the way you've created this family. It's a family of choice. And I think that's a really interesting vision of the family that's becoming more common. I think so. I mean, you know, years ago I came to California as a young woman alone without any blood kin. And I lived with a family of choice. And I developed friends who became a family of choice. And I think that thousands of people were getting off the bus in California at that same time to develop their families of choice. That's a good phrase you used for it, that for various reasons, we'd left our little towns and cities back in the South and in Texas and different parts of the Midwest, and we'd come out to the coast to redefine ourselves. And what we what we did was make new families of choice. And I and of course, my supernatural novels are going to reflect this. They're going to reflect. They're always about outcasts, people that are having trouble with their own families. The vampire Lestat famously fled his family to go to Paris and then discovered he was a vampire, and suddenly the only family he had were other vampires. And so the same, this sort of the same thing here. Reuben is pretty unhappy with his family. He's 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 a guy who's kind of persecuted and abused a bit psychologically in his family, and he has the heart of a poet and a writer. And when he becomes a man-wolf, he gets bitten and, and becomes an actual werewolf. He, he finds himself invited into a new clan where he's not uh, psychologically abused and not treated as somebody with no real value. And it's a brand new experience for him. And so that's going on in the novel right along with all the supernatural themes. How do I be a good werewolf, you know, being the supernatural theme? One of the things I think that's so interesting uh, about this book is the way that you've created the characters, each with an individual past. And these pasts, you allude to them a little bit. We get to know some of the characters mm. a little bit more, Felix and Saragai and mm. uh, Madrak. So I'd like you to talk about creating these characters and creating their pasts and weaving them together in the prose. Well, you know, I usually can't develop a character in the present if I don't have some idea of the past. But the actual writing process um, often involves discovering that past on the page. But there's a lot of starting and stopping and going back as I try to work out the past. I mean, one, one example, for example, uh, let me take the example of Laura. She's the woman in the book that Reuben meets in the forest. And I had to really work out a, a past for somebody who would be living like that on the edge of Mere Woods, alone in a little house, and who would open the door to a man wolf when he appeared in the backyard. And I had, I, you know, I drew on a lot in myself and in my experience of other people in trying to get to where Laura was, a person who could look at something like a man-wolf and not have her sanity just shattered by seeing something that completely unexpected and surprising. You know, in, in this novel, uh, in the first book, uh, The Wolf Gift, we experienced the change of from a human to a werewolf mm-hmm. at, from within at, with Reuben. Right. And in this book, we get to see it from without as he sees uh, it happen to Laura. And I thought that was an interesting flip of the switch for you. And mm. given the gender change, I'd like you to talk about using the werewolf supernatural trope to externalize who these people are and turn what might be psychological traits that are otherwise invisible into actual physical traits? Well, I think every time I tried to write about Reuben and his response to Laura becoming a she-wolf, I was confronted with Reuben's fear. Was he going to love her when she was that powerful? Was his love for her 
rooted in her acceptance of him as a man-wolf while she remained a fragile human being. And, of course, he works hard at loving her and overcoming his fear that he's not going to love her. And, of course, he does love her. He totally accepts her. And he finds that his love transcends the fact that she is grows strong, has these powerful she-wolf hormones pumping through her, becomes completely covered in hair, and almost his physical equal as a wolf, and, and certainly the equal of any, any human man she's going to encounter out there in the world. I mean, she's superior. And I love playing with that. I feel like I've just begun with the character of Laura. I mean, I really want to go on more about <clears throat> Laura and the other women in the group and why they tend to segregate from the males. I've hinted that they usually do, that, the, that men-wolves congregate in packs and she-wolves congregate in packs. They don't come together too often. And, and I don't—see, I'm, I'm watching this evolve, and I'm making it evolve, and I'm standing back from it, and I'm also participating in it. But I, I have to—why am I going that way? I have to figure that out for myself and for them. Well, I think that's one of the pleasures for us as readers is watching the series evolve in that each novel has its, I guess, tale of thrilling wonder tale within it. And, and there are several threads in, in this book. Mm-hmm. But also there's the bigger story for us as readers across the novels. And it's nice to see the way that you nuance that forward. And that also creates a lot of tension in the reading experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think I'm always groping there for the feeling of authenticity as I get deeper and deeper into these characters. I I mean, for me, characters really do come alive on the page. The old cliche is absolutely true. If they don't, it's an agony, and I don't keep them around too long. <clears throat> you know, they, they get killed off like, like Lestat's friend Nicholas in, in The Vampire Lestat. They just go. I mean, if I can't really, you know, get with those characters... So I'm kind of loving it that these characters are coming alive. And I also like to be surprised by characters. Like Sergei, I hadn't thought a lot about that character, but now I'm thinking of a whole story about him and why he gives these enigmatic answers to the young, the young boy wolf, Stuart, when Stuart keeps asking Sergei where he came from and what his past was. And, you know, and, and Sergei says, well, I was Peter the Great, you know. And, 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 and Stuart says, I don't think you were. I think you were a pig farmer in the, you know, on the East Coast and, you know, so forth. And they, they go back and forth with this. But that character is sort of surprising me. When characters kind of take over in your mind and keep going back to them and thinking about them, it's kind of wonderful. Well, I, I think one of the things that's really nice about this book is this feeling of dissonance that, that we get. On one hand, we have this giant loving family. Uh, as the book begins, they're just gearing up for this enormous uh, celebration where they're essentially going to take over and buy out the whole town of Nidek Point right, yeah. and turn it into one giant Christmas crèche mm-hmm. chock full of every kind of Yuletide tradition you could have come to. And it's like Norman Rockwell gone mm-hmm. viral. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, these are man-eating monsters <laughs> who love the taste of human flesh yeah. best. Yeah. And that's right. a a really great dissonance for us as readers because we're kind of going, oh, I really like these people, but wait, they would eat me in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, not quite. They wouldn't <laughs> eat a good guy in a heartbeat. You know, they'd eat a bad guy in a heartbeat. So that's different. But I do think 
all supernatural fiction is metaphorical. We're always talking about ourselves, and we are like this. We are the people who can go to a small town and make a Christmas fair really work and love doing balloon art for children and face painting for them and, um, you know, selling crafts for gifts and so forth, and yet we're also predators. We're also ruthless predators and outsiders in our own souls, and we're forced to make decisions every day as predators. We eat food while the rest of the world starves. And we wear clothes and live in warm houses when we know there are millions on the other side of the world who don't have the food that we have, the clothing we have, the warmth that we have, the running water that we have. And I'm always kind of torn up about that. You know, there was, there's a little girl in me that wanted to run away and be a missionary when she was 10. And uh, I've never quite left behind the absolutes of a Catholic childhood. How can you live in luxury when people are starving, when they're hungry? You know, the Matthew 25 in the Gospels, when I was hungry, you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. You know, Jesus' words to us about taking care of other people. I can't forget that. So here I am writing supernatural fiction, and I'm battling with that because that's what I know of my own soul. And the souls of others. So, yes, you've got these man wolves, and they're making a big fair because, because the fair is what I believe we should be doing, creating things, making life better for ourselves and for others, doing it publicly, restoring a town. Why should a town die if you can restore a town and make the town come back to life, as Felix does in the book with Nidek, Nidek the little town? Isn't it wonderful? Shouldn't all towns be restored? Don't people need towns? You know, all that's going on in my brain. And yet there's that, that, um, that deep-rooted search for values and that awareness of sort of a cosmic guilt and a cosmic dissatisfaction. So all my novels are always going to reflect these two different uh, kinds of activities. I, I remember being told that when I was a creative writing student. They said, your writings always you have these two poles, you know. You have this mundane little girl in the book, and then you have this glittering, strange, mysterious, supernatural character. And, you know, you're always fighting with these two different um, fabric of, of, of two different fabrics, I guess, trying to bring them together into one texture. I think one of the things you bring together in this book really well is to ground this stuff and make it seem really real to us. Mm -hmm. This is very tough. I mean, werewolves are not an easy sell, and mm -hmm. but you've done a great job of creating these werewolves here in Northern California. So I'd like you to talk about just working out the some of the biological aspects of this, and that's important to you. It is. I, I don't like to use magic in supernatural fiction. So I don't use garlic to weaken <clears throat> vampires or stakes through the heart to kill them or silver bullets to kill werewolves or the phases of the moon to control when werewolves become werewolves. I like to work out a sort of biological explanation that they, for some reason, this species of immortals has developed and they hormonally change um, into these powerful anthropomorphic wolf figures and Often that change is triggered by hearing with their sensitive ears a crime out there, hearing the cries of the innocent being victimized by the evil. And they can even pick up the scent. Like a dog smells fear, they can smell evil. And that will bring the change on in them. It's the first thing that brings on the change in Reuben, really, when he starts to hear the voices in the night of people who are being victimized by criminals. And that 
inside, you know, starts the hormones going just as it does in us. If someone attacks us, you know, our hormones and endocrine system work to help us uh, be able to defend ourselves. So I like that kind of biological horror. I like to work with that rather than cosmologies that involve a lot of arbitrary magic. And I really don't know much about science. I have a terrible time with science. You know, I call my doctor friends on the phone and ask them crazy questions, and they give me little bits of knowledge that I can weave into my man-wolf uh, uh, cosmology, and it's very helpful. <laughs> Well, at one point, one of your characters says, no science to ghosts, no science to us, no science to the forest, just a lot of pseudoscience. And <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. like that aspect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, I have to admit that I was super thrilled. There's, You mentioned some of your uh, – in here we get a couple of literary call-outs, but I just want to take a moment to mention Young Goodman Brown. Oh, yeah. Great one, story. One of my favorite stories of all time. Great story. I love Nathaniel Hawthorne. I just totally love his work. <clears throat> and I, I love that story. Yeah. And, and I think there's a more than a little bit of the House of Seven Gables in Nidek Point in mm. the way that – the house itself is a character in this book. You do all the world building in this house. Mm-hmm. We get to see it underneath. And I, mm-hmm. so I'd like you to talk about creating the house at Nidic Point as a, as a character. Well, I'm in love with houses and always have been. And I dream of houses that will be the perfect refuge and the perfect place for um, creativity and productivity and and really for a family or a group of people to flourish. And I've had the privilege of living in some pretty great houses in the South. But I'm also a person who's never found a permanent home. I don't live in those houses now. I went back to the South. I I refurbished and renovated and upgraded great, big, beautiful houses that were built in the 19th century. But they've been passed on now to different owners, and I'm no longer there. And I think Nidek Point is is kind of my tribute to all those different houses that I lived in and worked in and pulled down plaster in and, you know, examined the floorboards of and the treads and the rafters and so forth. Okay, so I built this permanent house for myself, Nidek Point, in my imagination. I'm living in a little rental house right now in Palm Desert, California, a little family home that looks like every other one on the block. You know, it's a very peaceful little community, perfect place to write. But I don't live at Nidek Point except in my heart and soul. And and I had to have Nidek Point, and my character had to have it. And, you know, it just happened in the first few pages of the book. I didn't really know where I was going to go with the idea of the house. Um, I just... It just it just happened, and the house grew like any other character in the work. I began. I, what can I say? I don't know why everybody doesn't love great big old houses. It hurts me to come to San Francisco and look at all the Victorians because I can't own one right now, and and be walking through its rooms and asking it to talk to me and tell me about when it was built in the nineteen in the eighteen eighties and and how it survived the quake of '06. And you know, I, I I long for all that. I'll never get that out of my system. Well, I have to ask, why did you leave your houses in the South behind? Well, I think I'm a person who craves novelty. And um, I reached a point in the South. My husband had died, and my son Christopher, my only child, had moved to the West Coast and was living in West Hollywood. And I found myself alone in a great big house that I had loved and lived in for 15 years. And I didn't want to be there anymore. It was It was finished. It was time to move on, and I left that house behind, and I can honestly say I would not want to be back there if I had 
the choice. You know, it, it, a house like that, well, that house was there before I came along. It was there before I was born. It'll be there after I'm gone. And I had a wonderful time in it, but that need for novelty, that need to be close to my son, that need to move on back to California uh, to see a new landscape, new weather, uh, that prevailed. That was stronger than my devotion to that house. I have to say, too, the way you talk about Nidek Point, it, it seems like you spend a lot of time there, as I much do. time and the kind of time you would spend in your other houses. Well, I, I do. I mean, I really feel the house, and, and uh, I've, I've been thinking of getting a, a very dear relative friend of mine to draw up the plans for Nidek Point so that I can have a real blueprint of it, and uh, I may do that. And I'd like to work out the details of the outside even better. Uh, it, it, it really has got its hooks into me. I mean, there was a scary moment when I was driving up on the Mendocino Coast. I was with my assistant. He was behind the wheel. I don't actually drive. But I was riding on the Mendocino Coast. And I thought, oh, Nidek Point. I saw this house and I thought, and Nidek Point doesn't exist. Get a grip. I mean, that was scary. I mean, the, the, I don't usually have that kind of moment, you know. But I saw some house off there and I thought, Oh, you know, and there was this almost embarrassing sense of, you're not going to find Nidek Point here. You, you, it's it doesn't exist anywhere. One of the things you're doing and you do in this book is you extend your supernatural family of critters. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <and> critters, you, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> to include uh, some some new species, we we meet uh, the servants, and I think we don't know what they are yet. And, mm-hmm. and I really like the sense of mystery that you create around mm-hmm. them. Yeah, the idea. Well, the servants said we don't want to reveal too much for any reader who hasn't read the book, but the servants will have their own cosmology and their own origin story in a future book, no question. But the ser- the servants seem to me to be a logical thing, that there would be such people in, in the world of supernatural or ageless ones drifting through the world. That's what I'm driving at, that there are all these different species of ageless ones who coexist with us, look like us, but aren't us. And they have their own relationships with each other, and some of them serve other ageless ones. <clears throat> and they get by by doing that. You know, that's sort of the way they've found their niche. They, they become the servants of other predatory immortals, <laughs> and they get protected because of that. And we also meet the forest gentry. I, yes. I, and I really love your concept of this, and I especially love uh, uh, when Margon says uh, that they're not like Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I get tired of the ones that are like Tolkien, yeah, and well, yours are really, a, a, it's a fascinating creation. Yeah. Well, I like to leave it open, too, whether they're ghosts or spirits. They insist they're spirits, that they have never lived as biological humans. They've always been the spirits of the forest. Margot says, no, you're just ghosts who have learned how to come back through. You know, there's no spirit on the planet that wasn't a human being first. And so they're having that big cosmological fight over that. And he's really hurting the feelings of the forest gentry who really think that they're very noble spirits and that they were here before human beings were. So I'm leaving it to the reader to decide, who do you want to believe? Do you want to believe Margon, who's always the godless, you know, and sort of anti-cosmology? Or do you want to believe the spirits of the forest when they say, we have always been here? Well, and this gets us to at one point is uh, at one point one of your characters uh, talks about how vast the subject of God is, and I really like the sense of uh, 
theological discussions that don't involve theology that you managed mm-hmm. to pull off in this book. That's a oh good. I'm glad you, <laughs> that's good. I, I like that what you just said. Yeah, because I'm trying to describe the history of theology without going into theology. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and well, this happens in a lot of places where you talk about spirituality without necessarily getting into the kind of normal and somewhat new age-ish sounding spirituality. Mm-hmm. You you do a lot of stuff without actually trying to do it. So I'd like you to talk about that. Do you have to like just lay it down in broader, bolder terms and then back it off, or does it just bubble up like that? I'm always trying to get back to the human mind, trying to make its way through and not be bogged down in cosmologies or theologies of other people. And I think that guides my writing. Ruben's trying to figure it out. You know, Jim, his brother, is trying to figure it out. And they talk a lot about what they think is meaningful, and they try to stay clear of theologies. And and I think when you do study theology and, and cosmology and New Age um, thinking, you do see that there's an awful lot that people assume and have inherited. And sometimes they're not always conscious that they've assumed it or um, taken it for granted or inherited it. If you New Age philosophy, for example, is actually filled with, I think, a great deal of Christianity warmed over, just stripped <laughs> of certain labels. <clears throat> but the same ideas predominate that evil is evil and will come back at you if you do bad things. Well, maybe, you know. And that... Uh, we are somehow to blame for every bad thing in the material world. That's the original sin warmed over. You know, that's the idea of a fallen world. We're to blame for the fallen world. And when, when I see things like that, when I see uh, the evolution of thought um, involving a lot of inherited assumptions and, and they're not really being questioned uh, by the people who are passing them along now in a lot of New Age books, I, the alarm goes off in me. I think, well, wait a minute. What do you, what do you mean we misunderstand the spiritual? What do, you, what do you mean that we are trapped in time? Who made time? I mean, you know, we have time is a good thing. What are you talking about? And physicality is a beautiful thing. Well, you know, New Age, new age thinking can be very puritanical and anti-biological. And I am a person who believes in the senses, in the glory of the senses, you know, whether turning into a werewolf or having sex in a bread and, be- bed and breakfast room, you know, hotel room. I believe in the senses. I believe in looking for truth in our physicality, in the mixture of body and soul, you know. Well, there, you do do a great mixture of body and soul. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say I really love how much... Uh, the physicality uh, runs to this book and the way that you manage it. It comes and goes. It ebbs and flows. There are moments of, you know, romantic sweetness and then you'll cut away and then 60 pages later we're in the midst of what might be called bestiality yes (laughs) by somebody with a puritanical bent well i don't call it bestiality i (laughs) mean you know it's not but i (laughs) yeah laura's sleeping with a man wolf who can talk to her you know (laughs) it's not really bestiality it's just sleeping with a very hairy individual it's a difference and well and pretty soon there are two man wolves there we have 
mm-hmm. the the two transformed creatures. Mm-hmm. You you take us through all these permutations. I'd like you to talk about uh, as a writer managing the flow of the sensuality and the joy <clears throat> and the love and the physicality in the course of the novel so that it doesn't ever become too much at any one point. You do it all by feel, by instinct. I, I put myself in the story. I become Reuben, and I just move along into that story investigating what's really interesting to me at every moment. Now, there is, you know, a part of me that's a little more analytical as a writer, you know, saying advance the plot, you know, or don't linger too long on this. And, of course, I'm always accused by my critics of lingering far too long on just about everything, you know. But <clears throat> I'm in there with Reuben, and I'm it's Reuben's day, and he's encountering all these different things. If he drives back up to Nidek Point, I'm going to stop and talk about what the weather is like when he steps out of his car. And it's going to mean something to me. And I don't know how to do writing any other way except to um, proceed page by page through the story and um, feel for the authentic and keep going back to what interests me, what I find hot, what I find uh, really intense. That, that's what it is. It's a search for intensity when I write. And that's why no matter what the critics say, I can't really regret doing anything. I can't regret it because what I've done is gone where the pain is, gone where the pleasure is, and gone where the intensity is. And I don't see any percentage in doing anything else. Well, I think that that inclination and that inclination to linger as you do Mm -hmm. is what makes your books so pleasurable to read and makes it for us as readers possible to immerse ourselves in the world building, in the surreal, and in the supernatural evocation mm-hmm. of this world. And that's what we go to reading for. We don't mm. go, f- I don't go for reading. If I want to read something that's real, I can read my grocery list. That's true. I, I, I myself don't, I've never understood the obsession with pedestrian realism and, and certainly never understood the idea that pedestrian realism is the only valid literature. That is, to me, a preposterous notion. I think it would have been preposterous to the people in the tavern in 700 B.C. listening to the harpist tell the story of the Iliad. They would have thought, what? You want to write a story about us and our hovel? Oh, please. You know what? You, re- you want to write a story? Oh, no. You know, we'd rather listen about Odysseus and, and you know, and uh, <clears throat> Achilles. Thank you. We don't, we don't. Yeah, we want the gods and the monsters. Yeah, we want the gods and the monsters. I, I'm, that's what I want to do with fiction. Well, one of the things I think that we we get to in this book is uh, ghosts. And uh, for me, ghosts have always been something that I find really interesting because the idea haunted is a psychological state. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's often observed as well as it is in this book. Mm. Okay. That's interesting because for me, the ghost was completely real. Mm -hmm. And she had a reason, you know. Oh, no, she's real. But I think that we as humans are interested in ghosts because we ourselves are constantly haunted by mm-hmm. you know the yeah. the ghosts of our own mistakes the sure. choices we made and it's the the yeah. ghost that um of of Marchant who, mm-hmm. who had, was killed in the first book right uh is a is a perfect example of that mm-hmm. and also the people in this book are trying to move on very fast from Marchant's death and Reuben, you know, he can't be allowed to move on that fast. She's still there. 
And, you know, her ghost is still there. And he has a lot of conflicting feelings about the fact that we're, we're doing a big Christmas banquet and she died right there on the kitchen floor. And that wasn't very long ago. And uh, I think you're right. We're all haunted. Um, the, a lot of the essence of a ghost story revolves around the fact that we don't feel we can escape the dead person and the dead person's voice or demands or suffering. Well, we can't because they exist all the time, whether we want them to or not, in our memory. Exactly. Exactly. And, and two, uh, ghost stories are traditionally a part of this midwinter celebration. Yes. And, and yes. in the English literature, you know, the most powerful, biggest, baddest ghost story out there are uh, Christmas carols. Exactly. I think people lose sight of that. It's amazing how many people have asked me, what does a ghost story have to do with Christmas? I mean, I, I've heard this from people who say, well, the Victorians thought they were absolutely a Christmas entertainment. Every every year at Christmas, their periodicals were filled with ghost stories. And Dickens wrote many more than A Christmas Carol. And again, it gets back to that old belief in the northern parts of Europe that the veil came down at Christmas time and the dead were close by. And the dead could come across into the realm of the living and maybe the living could peer into the realm of the dead. And there are a lot of complex reasons why those beliefs existed. And we don't entirely understand what they were, maybe, but we can't shake off those feelings. I, I, I just love Christmas. I want to write about it some more. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'll come back to it in this setting <clears throat> or in this, in this with these characters? I'd like to come back to it in another series um, that's called The Songs of the Seraphim. It's about a, a young man, Toby O'Dare, who goes to work for the angels and they send him back in time to answer prayers. And I think I have a Christmas novel there with Toby where he goes back to the Middle Ages where they're celebrating Christmas in England and, you know, has to answer some prayers <laughs> at that time. <laughs> that sounds like quite a bit of fun. I know. Well, I hope so. Uh, one of the things that, that keeps this book lively and exciting are the plot, you know, the, the superhero aspects of this because <clears throat> in many ways this is uh, a supernatural a superhero, mm -hmm. uh, and he it, he rescues, uh, saves the good from the evil. And I'd like you to talk about uh, orchestrating these scenes, you know, in terms of blocking them out, because we see them really vividly. We see these rescues really vividly. Well, you know, again, it's with me, everything is instinctive, and I go for... Um like, Reuben runs out of the house at one point. You know, the ghost really drives him out of the house and, and, and all his conflicting feelings. And he yields to the temptation to go out there and be a superhero. And he goes out into the woods and he hears some pretty bad voices, you know, out there in the woods. The voice of a little girl who's being hurt and the voice of somebody who's really an evil person hurting that little girl. And he rescues that little girl. And she becomes a character in the novel, Little Susie Blakely. And she becomes kind of a big deal. Because he's broken the rules of the distinguished gentlemen who say, don't go out there rampaging and doing things on your own, you know, stick with us, we'll do things as a pack. And there he's gone out on his own. And there are consequences to that eventually, and they're complex. Um, and I loved working with that, because I think if you are a superhero, you're going to be tempted to go out on your own and be one. I think there's a character in the book, Stuart, who's I'm just getting into. He's the boy wolf, Stuart, the teen gay boy wolf. And I think Stuart at some point is going to run away. He's just not going to listen anymore to the elders. He wants the kind of experiences Reuben had before the elders ever came and embraced Reuben and tried to 
draw him into the family and protect him from himself. And Stuart's going to want to go on some rampages somewhere in the country and become a full-swinging comic book hero. <laughs> well, he's going to have to have his moment of teen rebellion as exactly. all teenagers. Especially since his lover is 5,000 years old. You know, really. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think you do a, a real nice job weaving in a, a number of other plot lines with uh, Ruben's family. I, I love what you do with Ruben's brother, Jim. And Great. Mm, it's really interesting. We get kind of his backstory, and that plays into this present story. How much of that did you know about him before you started writing this book? Oh, you know, that was another one of those characters that sprang to life on the page and developed. But I don't know that I could have written Jim if I did not myself have several close friends who are priests. You know, and, and knowing them in the last 15 years or so has really influenced me knowing something about their experience and what they go through. And, of course, my own recent conversion and then leaving organized religion, that influenced me, too. I don't think I could have written Jim 20 years ago. I didn't know enough about what priests thought or felt, or not, not enough to try to become one in a book. But this time around, I really did become Jim. And, of course, Jim is the one person in the world, in, in Reuben's family, who knows exactly what Reuben is because Jim heard his confession. Reuben came into confession as a man-wolf and told him, <clears throat> you know, in under the seal of the confessional, I'm the one that they're hunting all over Northern California. I'm your brother, and I am this man-wolf. And um, Jim has the burden of knowing that, and he can't tell anybody. And um, the rest just sort of developed in the novel, Jim's own backstory, his own suffering, his own conflicts. He is a person who believes in God. Reuben doesn't. And he believes in God in his own way. And he's a very good priest. He's, a, he's a, determined to be a good priest, just as Reuben's determined to be a good man-wolf. You know? And I found that interesting to write about and to play with. And I'm just getting started with Jim. Oh, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. And I think you do a good job, too, uh, with the real locations in San Francisco. I, I mm. enjoyed being... You know, the, the Taylor Street parking garage, there's a detail that's going to really ring true with a lot of people because everybody has to park in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. I Well, I, did, I put a lot of research into that stuff. Just It doesn't take very long, really. I mean, I lived here for 30 years, and, and I know San Francisco, and I love it. But I was on the phone calling somebody at Grace Cathedral saying, what time do the lights go on there? Because I had this scene where Ruben's looking out the window, and and at dusk suddenly Grace Cathedral is completely illuminated, and it has a great meaning to him when he sees the facade of the cathedral coming to life. Because Jim is 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 suffering at that moment, a terrible crisis of faith, and Jim is a priest. So I had to call somebody at Grace Cathedral and say, well, "What time did the I emailed them? What time did the, the lights come on every night, and did they do it at a certain time?" And they wrote back and said, "Yes, this is what happens, and so forth." So I got that detail right. You know, I didn't want to take any liberties with that. As a writer, when you're putting this together, one of the things I noticed, too, is that all, all these guys and all the the monsters and all your various critters, they're all big. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking of, you know— and. At the in those times they were giants. The, the, oh, giants in the earth. Giants yeah. in the yeah. earth from and, and the nephilim. So I'm yeah. wondering if we're going to be meeting any nephilim anytime soon in this series. I think that's a delicious idea, but I did sort of deal with that in Memnock the Devil, 
Uh, that was my Nephilim novel, so to speak, about the, the the angels coming down and sleeping with the daughters of men and so forth. I explored that in, in that novel, which was a vampire novel about my hero, Lestat, um, you know, going to heaven and hell. So I'm not sure I'm going to go back to the Nephilim. And... As you work through these books, you know, you're, you're writing, uh, you, you're involved in other series at the same time. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the crosstalk for you as a writer between one series and another. Well, I've come to realize there, all these series for me have different textures. And I don't think they, I should mix them. I don't want to mix them. Um, I do have the Talamasca, this supernatural, this uh, scholarly organization that stuff, stuff, studies supernatural phenomena, and I do like bringing them into the different novels. And I'll bring them into the Wolf Gift novel. They'll, they'll come in at some point, and they'll make contact with Reuben and Margon and so forth, if, if they haven't already <clears throat> somewhere, you know. But I don't want to mix um, the other supernatural families I've created. I did try to mix the Mayfair Witches and the Vampires in two novels, three novels, and I don't think it worked. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with the witch parts in both in those novels and happy with the vampire parts, but there's something about the texture that just didn't work, and it didn't work for a lot of readers. So I'm not good at bringing it all together into one giant cosmology. They are, like for me, discrete fictions, you know, that I like to visit and be in. And I'm... So what is our... As readers, what's our timeline for your next novel and your next Wolf Gift novel? Well, I don't know at this point. I'd like to write more about Reuben right away, and I'm going to go home after this book tour and just write, and I hope to get out that third novel pretty quickly. It's going to focus a lot on Stuart and Sergey, and maybe the wolves down in Louisiana who live in the swamp, and, you know, wolves who have the great great luxury of being able to walk all over in full wolf coat on Mardi Gras day because people think they're in costume. That sounds like a lot of fun. I've been speaking with Anne Rice. Her new novel is The Wolves of Midwinter. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. You've asked the most wonderful questions. It's been a delight. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.